Welcome to the Food Lens Podcast. I'm your host, Katherine Smart, New England food writer and founder of The Not Just Company. And I'm your host, Molly Ford, co-founder of The Food Lens, your online resource for the best restaurants, bars, and events in Boston. On each episode of our podcast, we chat with restaurant industry insiders, digging into business, passion projects, and food trends to see what's shaping the New England restaurant scene. On today's episode, Lauren Friel from Rebel Rebel Wine Bar is joining us in studio. Hey, Catherine. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good. A little stressed out. Lots going on. Yeah? What's new at the food lens these days? It's just always a lot of moving parts, and I love it, but it's a lot of work. Yeah. People see the sexy stuff on the outside, the beautiful you know, content that you guys put out, but there's a lot of work that goes in behind the scenes. Yeah, and a lot of it's not so glamorous, like the the data and analytics, you know, that's not really <laughs> what I love to do, but I spend a lot of time on Google Analytics tracking what all of you read on the food lens. So I know more about you than <laughs> you think. <laughs> but how are things going with you? I mean, you just started a business. Yeah, it's going really well. We, um, we are going to be launching our new website soon, which I'm really, really excited about. We've been working hard on that. Uh, we have some new products in the works, but all that means, you know, sweating in my kitchen doing the very first iterations of uh, of recipes and going back and forth with my designer on specs to make sure that like a barcode is going to scan properly. You know, lots of those sort of details that you talk about. There's always a lot going on uh, with the startup. I know it's almost hard to talk about because you can't put into words everything you're always doing and working on. And so sometimes I'm like, uh, what do I do? <laughs> I also think it's a really dangerous but useful tool to, if you say something out loud, then I'm like, well, I guess I really have to make sure that happens yes, now. totally. <laughs> <laughs> this is relaunching at this time. But I think we'll be able to take some notes and learn a lot from Lauren Friel, who's coming into studio today to talk to us about her wine bar, Rebel Rebel. You're very familiar with it because it's right in your hood. Yes, it's right in my hood in Somerville, and Lauren is such a boss. I'm so excited to talk to her. She has done such an amazing job at managing all these different aspects of her business. So, you know, she has her public persona. She does lots of media and lots of classes. She's active on social. And then there's the day-to-day of running her bar and managing her team. She's also a legit sommelier. She's not just someone who opened a little wine bar. So... I can't wait to hear her perspective on how she manages all those different pieces. Me too. And quite frankly, I just want to ask her for the exact definition of natural wine because yes. it's confusing <laughs> and I want to hear it straight from the pro. Absolutely. None of this, the emperor has no clothes stuff. I mean, I've heard so many hot takes on natural wine and I trust Lauren completely to give us the skinny on you know what is worth drinking, what we should be looking for when we're buying it, when we're ordering it. I can't wait. Lauren, I think this is the first time I've sat across the table from you without a delicious glass of wine between us. I know, and I should have brought some. Next time. Next time. Yeah, next time. <laughs> we'll come to you. Yeah, come to the bar and we'll hang out. I don't think the sound will be as good, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe well, we'll be surprised. <laughs> well, we're so excited to have you here. We're going to talk all things wine. Um, but first, I just wanted to ask you what is a feminist wine bar and why was now the time to open one? 
I kind of like jokingly say it's a Weimar that's feminist, which is a jerk response. But what the real response is, is a feminist wine bar for us means creating a safe space for everyone. Um, We have a zero tolerance harassment policy. We have an all-female staff at the moment. So if one of our staff feels uncomfortable because of the way that a guest is treating them, they have power to step into that situation and... um, resolve it if that means asking the guest to change their behavior if it means asking the guest to leave if it means getting someone else involved um, they know that they have my full support Um, I've worked in a lot of places um, where that wasn't the case we just consider every what everyone might be bringing into that space most spaces are built for the dominant culture, uh, the dominant demographic, whether that means um, you're white, whether it means you're male, whether it means you are upper class, or whether it means you're able-bodied. Most spaces in the world are designed for that that demographic. Um, and we acknowledge that and try to create a space where folks who don't identify with any or all of those categories can feel safe and comfortable. Um, and we do a lot of work to also promote conversations around what that means, what that looks like both for us and for our industry at large. You really made that decision from day one to bring not just kind of your politics and your activism, but also a lot of, you know, personal story and and your kind of personal journey. You've talked very openly about abusive relationships, about body image. I'm curious about what it was like to get to that place or that's sort of all how you've always been like how did you make that decision of I'm going to make this really personal yeah I mean I think I've always been really vocal maybe like for better or worse Um, I've always been a kind of like open loud person after I kind of got out of the abusive relationship that I was in um, I almost died in that relationship Um, and once you have an experience like that it becomes a lot or it became a lot easier for me to just decide to only do the things that I really want to do um, and to do them a hundred 10% all the time. And being personal about that really for me, and this isn't the case for everyone, but for me, it was the right thing because it was liberating. Um, It was really something that helped me let go of a lot of the shame that's associated with those kinds of experiences. And for me, the shame is what undermines us. The other thing that, that sharing those experiences does is it creates community. Um, And it helps us investigate our biases about the kinds of people and situations and circumstances that are involved in those experiences. Um, And that's really important to me. Uh, Lauren, kind of going back to community building and your industry, for people who are not familiar, especially if they're outside of Boston, your Rosé for Resistance project. Yeah. Yeah. So Rosé for Resistance was uh, was an impulsive decision that I made. Um, So basically what happened was after the um, really outrageous abortion legislation was passed in Alabama, um, the next morning I woke up and read the news and got really upset. I've worked in reproductive rights for a long time. Um, I used to work for Planned Parenthood as a hotline worker, so it's something that's near and dear to my heart. I've had an abortion. I've written about that as well. And so I woke up the next day and decided that we were going to donate our 100% of rosé sales, so not just the profits but the sales, to the Yellowhammer Fund, which is an um, abortion fund in Alabama. And that gained speed incredibly quickly. I just posted on Instagram that this is something that we were going to be doing. Um, And I hadn't really thought it through about how we were going to do it or how it was going to work or how long or whatever. We sold out of Rosé that night within like a couple of hours. 
By the end of the week, we had over 30 restaurants and bars, um, both in Boston and in other states, participating in the fundraiser in some way. We did the fundraiser for two weeks, and we did a couple of smaller events associated with it, but we got over 40 cases of wine donated from our distributors, from winemakers who are in California who are calling us to donate wine as well. Um, we ended up raising, as a group, over $40,000. And then us individually as a bar, we raised $27,000. Oh my God, that is crazy, especially for a tiny little wine bar like Rebel Rebel. I mean, what did you learn from such a powerful movement? What I learned um, was that you just have to start. You just have to do something. Um, I think so often we get bogged down in like thinking about okay, I want to do this. How are we going to make it work? And the planning and the PR and, you know, just if you just start something, you know, I started off with the idea that if we could raise a couple grand, that would be great. And obviously we've really, really, really surpassed my expectations. And the seeing the restaurant community come together and really galvanize around the issue and get excited about it was really special. We gave people an opportunity to engage with activism in a way that was easy. For people who have not been to Rebel Rebel, just to kind of really drive home that you can start something small, how many seats are in your bar? Oh, yeah, good point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we have eight seats, physical seats (laughs) at the bar. And then we have like an additional, depending on how friendly you are with your group, um, eight to 10 seats seated. We have outdoor seating as well now in the summer, but we're a 284 square foot space. So we did pretty well, I think. (laughs) Yeah, it's cozy. It's awesome. It is, yeah. I'm so impressed, I mean, with you opening Rebel Rebel and running it and traveling and spearheading the Rosé for Resistance project. I mean, you're doing so much. How are you balancing everything? Um, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> or juggling. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, well, so I have to say, and the team that I have at Rebel Rebel is like a dream. I don't know what I did to luck out to get the women who are working for me. They definitely run the show most of the time at night, which allows me to not be on the bar until midnight every night which allows me to get up and start hustling at like 7 a.m., which is what I usually start doing. You know, but I think the myth of like having it all is kind of a dangerous one. And, you know, I do need to be honest about the fact that I haven't exercised in a couple of months. I don't always eat well. I am stressed. I'm working toward a balance. For me, the key is being honest with my friends and family and employees about where I'm at. mentally and um, with how much I have on my plate, saying no to stuff is something that I am learning how to do. There are two female entrepreneurs nodding emphatically (laughs) on the other (laughs) side of the table right now. Yeah. Yeah. And especially, I mean, and I'm like, I don't have a family to take care of. So, I mean, I look at you, Catherine, and I'm I'm like just amazed um, that you can do what you do. And um, I'm sure it's not easy. And I have a ton of appreciation for that. Let's talk for a minute about Weinster. A what-a-stir? Did you say wine? Or am I just imagining it because I am counting down the days until this baby is born and I can pop a celebratory bottle? Well, Weinster curates great wines from small producers in the U.S. You browse their collection of unique, hard-to-find wines, and then they ship it straight to your door with fast, cheap delivery. Wait a minute. Is this a wine club? Like those pricey fruit basket and Chardonnay things my parents used to pick out from catalogs in the 90s? Definitely not. Weinster does have a club program with special member pricing for some of the best bottles. But there's no commitment and it starts at just $79 per shipment. Plus, unlike a lot of other clubs, the selections are from small production wineries. You have the option to repurchase your favorite bottles 
and you get 24-7 access to an expert wine advisor. Oh, and you get free shipping on wine gifts that you want to send to friends or family or, or co-hosts. Yes, co-hosts. Way to ruin your surprise baby gift. Whoops. So you're telling me I don't need to pack up my baby or put on pants to get great wine? And when I do finally leave the house, I can show up to book club with something so much better than the usual grocery store swill? Exactly. They only work with real wine made by real people, not the mass-produced brands that overwhelm store shelves. So anyone and everyone who loves wine should head to winester.com for more information. That's W-I-N-E-S-T-Y-R.com. I want to, um, Lauren, circle back on, that's such an annoying corporate term. I'd like to circle back. But we talked about what is a feminist bar, but you've also spoken a bit about your feminist business model. We're all women in the room, but I think anybody could choose and could benefit from, you know, adopting a feminist business model. I say that without fully understanding what that means. Sure. <laughs> so I would love for you to talk about yeah. what that is and how we can all, yeah, you know, incorporate it possibly. Yeah. So there are a lot of different ways to think about it. For me, the things that we do that are much different than places where I've worked before is that we create a very compassionate, empathic, people-oriented space, both for our guests, but also for the staff. I know that particularly in the restaurant industry where there's, you know, a lot of talk about a hiring crisis and how we don't have the staff. So the thing that has become really important to me is main is making sure that we're really taking care of our people and that we're cultivating them um, in the way that they need. We also put our bodies first and that means a lot of different things, but we have a very, very, very strict, if you're sick at all, please don't come to work. I have this saying that's like, there's no such thing as a wine emergency. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's like, if we're down a person because you're not feeling good, it's going to be fine. You know, uh, we're not saving lives. If you are having a bad day, come in and say it. You know, let us do what we need to do to make sure that you're supported. If that means coming in late, if it means leaving early, if it means just like, taking as much of the load off of you while you're at work, if you want to be there uh, as we can. We also closed earlier than we could based on our license. I don't believe in staying up until four in the morning. I don't think that walking home at 2 a.m. is great either. We do have an all-female staff at the moment, and I am aware of their safety, and it is something that's a primary concern. Um, so we try to make sure that everyone's headed home at a reasonable hour before all the other bars are getting out um, when there's still public transportation available. And so there are a lot of things. I mean, some of them are a little more concrete than others, for mm -hmm. sure. And how do you feel like that has affected your bottom line as someone who has to keep track of that, too? Yeah, we're doing pretty well. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> kind of what I thought. Yeah. So you're telling yeah. us it makes good business it, sense. It does also make good business sense. Interesting. Yeah. Alert so, the presses. Yeah. So so the thing is, the thing for me is that the number one um, area where businesses, particularly restaurants, lose money is in training staff. Um, so if you have a high turnover rate, you waste a lot of time and energy in training your staff, um, new staff. For me, the longer that we can hold on to really good people, um, the better it is for me and the better it is for them as well because they can continue to grow and develop in the positions. Um, and then that benefits the business as well. I think too often we think of, in the service industry, we think of our employees as just bodies. Um, and you'll hear people say that, I just need a body, I just need a body. I understand the Band-Aid effect can work. Uh, but it's not a sustainable long-term business model. And I don't think that we've been investing in our staff in the way that we should. 
and I try to give them, I mean, I pay for their education as long as it's related to the job. I pay for the travel as long as it's job related. I try to introduce them to as many people and send them on as many business related tastings or um, excursions as I can because, you know, it's the right thing to do, but also it benefits, you know, it benefits the whole team. Speaking of wine, I think everyone, or not everyone, some people are really confused about the term natural wine. Yeah, yeah I'm confused. Yeah. I'm confused sometimes. <laughs> I am too. I mean, yeah. it's confusing. Yeah. So can you tell us what exactly is natural wine? Yes. So you're right to be confused. Um, there is no industry standard for what a natural wine is. That's a little bit by design. Natural wine, the easiest way to think about what natural wine is, is to, to think about what wine would be before the invention of machinery and human-made chemicals. So natural wine is effectively grapes that are grown without the use of chemicals, pesticides, or fertilizers at the, at the minimum. Hopefully there's a more integrated agricultural practice happening as well that creates an ecosystem in the vineyard that helps the vineyard to be just a healthier, a healthier viticultural example. In the cellar, uh, there's nothing added to or taken away from the wine. So the wines are fermented with wild yeasts. They are unfined and unfiltered. Um, they have minimal things added to them. Um, some producers argue that sulfites are okay. Some producers argue that they aren't. That's a big kind of um, hot button topic in the natural wine world. Um, I'm of the mind that sulfites are kind of the least of our worries. It is a naturally occurring chemical, and most producers use of tiny, 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 tiny amount. Um, and there's generally 10 times more sulfites in Tropicana or in any orange juice that you buy in the grocery store than there are in even the worst industrial wines. So it's kind of the not really where we should be focusing our attention. There are over 60 legal, legal additives to wine, and sulfites are the only ones that have to go on the label because of this bizarre labeling law loophole. Additionally, what we're usually looking at are native grapes. That is really all self-regulated at this point. Um, the natural winemaking community has really seen what has happened with greenwashing in organic production, where you can get certifications. But what that allows you to do is kind of do the bare minimum to make the certification and then really not engage with anything else. Um, the natural wine community right now is small enough that it can self-regulate in a fairly reliable way. But as you pointed out, as a consumer, that's very confusing um, because there isn't anything that you can look at on the label that says natural wine certified or, you know, there's no symbol or anything like that like there is with organic wine. Yeah, I think that's definitely confusing for people. It's definitely complicated for me when I'm staring at 100 wine bottles. I want to see that label that says natural wine. And so what do you think people should do when they're trying to look for a really tasty bottle of natural wine? So if you want to know what you're drinking and make sure that it's good, what I generally suggest people do is find a small shop, boutique wine shop or a restaurant or bar um, where you trust the folks there and you can ask some questions. You can also generally a good rule of thumb is to avoid wines that you see everywhere. So the more Whispering Angel, you're Whispering saying that's not Angel, a great, yeah, <laughs> a great 
bottle for me <laughs> to be picking up. Whispering Angel is the bane of my existence. I know, right? It's just, it haunts that actually me. brings it's, everyone together, I, I think. Everyone in the wine world, natural, not natural, can all coalesce among the hatred uh, of Whispering Angel. It's just so bad. I don't think they're going to sponsor us. I don't, like, <laughs> I don't think that's going to work out. Yeah. So Sorry either. if I just, you could edit that out, right? So, yeah, no, I mean, the, if you just think about it, just in terms of production, like, the more places you see wine, it means that they're just pumping wine out. I mean, like, Yellowtail is a great example. Oh, man, you can Google Earth, their production facility, and it's just, like, football fields of these tanks in the middle of the Australian desert. It is bonkers. <laughs> it is so weird. I For me, it's like, drink what you whatever you want to drink, but I think that informed consumerism is important. So, you know, natural wine gets accused of being this kind of like snobbish, holier than thou um, niche market in wine. And and that can be true. And that's unfortunate for me. It's it's about um, responsible agricultural practices and it's about informed consumerism. Sure. Making yeah. a choice. And yeah. in sort of the opposite of that, you said it's a pretty small community. What are some upcoming trends, topics like what's new and exciting in the natural wine world? Yeah. Um, Oh, gosh, so much. We're seeing a lot of really interesting regions kind of popping up in natural wine because natural winemakers tend to be a little bit more experimental just by virtue of the way that they're making wine. Natural wine also tends to be a um, safe haven for marginalized producers. So folks who normally wouldn't have access to the kind of capital that it would take to uh, start a winery are finding a home in natural wine. That usually means that they're going to regions that are lesser known. We're seeing an awesome kind of explosion of really interesting um, production in Vermont. We're seeing in New England in general kind of an interest in um, viticulture, which is really cool. Oyster River wine growers in Warren, Maine um, is gaining a lot of ground. And a similar thing is happening in Texas, um, California, getting away from Napa, getting into these kind of smaller, lesser known regions that are in cooler climates in the mountains. And the, and the same is happening in Europe, Eastern Europe, Georgian wines, Croatian wines, things like that. So I'm curious if someone is totally unfamiliar with natural wine, but they walk into Rebel Rebel, what advice would you give them for ordering a glass of wine? Yeah. Oh, good. Um, come in with an open mind. Um, if the wine in front of you is cloudy, if it has a color that you're not used to seeing, um, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it. It actually just means that that wine hasn't been processed in a way that makes it crystal clear. If it has a smell that's a little bit different than anything you've ever smelled before, be open to that too. Um, or a flavor. If you don't like it, that's okay. I'm not advocating for choking down something mm. that you don't enjoy. This is so hip. I'm, mm. I'm just going to drink the whole thing. <laughs> At the end of the day, um, one of the women who works for me, Margot, always says, like, we never talk about the yum factor with wine. At the end of the day, there has to be a yum factor. And if there's no yum factor for you, then say, I don't like I don't like this. And we'll get you something you do like. But we, ha- but we have a whole range of flavors and experiences. So it can, a lot of the time, just be about getting you into something that you like. That's what I I loved when I came in for my first time. I didn't know anything on your list, and I trusted your team and ended up, you know, having three glasses of different wines that I love. Yes. Yes. I do want to touch really quickly, Lauren, if you wouldn't mind, for people who haven't been to Bow Market, where you're located in Somerville, it's 
granted, I'm totally biased because I've lived in the neighborhood for like 12 years. <laughs> uh, but it seems like a really special place. And you guys are such an anchor there. Can you talk about what it's like to be there, why you chose to be there and like what people can expect when they come to the whole area? Yeah, Bow Market's really special. Um, a space like this hasn't existed in Massachusetts before. So basically what we have, it's an old um, car storage facility that was developed into this kind of startup retail and food space. So all of the businesses there, there are around 30 30 vendors. Roughly half are food vendors and roughly half are retail vendors. And the retail ranges everything from um, a record shop to a, a vintage clothing store. And our food shops are, you know, obviously we're a wine bar. There's a, a narrative Filipino dining experience. There are empanadas. Uh, there's a chocolate shop. There's all different kinds of stuff. But we're all, for the most part, first-time business owners. Um, so it's this really interesting, almost incubation space for that. But the thing that makes it really cool is that all the spaces are very small, but we are really a very tight-knit community. And we're all kind of figuring it out together. And there are days when we run out of something and I get to you know, send a Slack message out to the other business owners and be like, hey, does anyone have trash bags? We ran out. You know, um, Does anyone know? When's the health inspector coming? You know, this kind of stuff. We all get to lean on each other, which is great. Um, I chose Bow Market because of that, and that was something that was really appealing to me. And I think it's really cool because we just serve wine. So we do one thing, <laughs> but all the food vendors are allowed to sell their food to our guests, which means that if you come in for a glass of wine and you also want a pizza from Hotbox or some vegetarian poutine from Sauce or oysters from Hooked, um, you can go get those things and bring them into our bar. We're going to wrap it up with our rapid fire round of questions. It's not okay. hard. Okay. <laughs> like, so, okay. please name your favorite Boston dumpling. Um, gourmet dumpling house, soup dumpling. Dive. Oh, no. Um, the model. Dessert. Baked Alaska at Oleana. And date spot. Field and Vine. 100%. Catherine, have you signed up for our monthly newsletter? Molly, I'm embarrassed to say that until recently I actually hadn't. I thought I was on top of all things TFL, but it turns out I was missing out, especially on the cocktail recipes that I'm now clipping like a grandmother and filing away for as soon as I give birth. Well, I'm a little offended it took you this long, but every month we highlight new content ranging from drool-worthy can't-miss dishes to neighborhood guides, cocktail recipes, upcoming events, and more. And you and Sarah throw the best events. I'm waiting with bated breath to see if you do Valentine's Day again this year. I am still thinking about the charcuterie boards and the raw bar. Well, now you'll be the first to know since you actually signed up. To sign up, just go to thefoodlens.com and click on the subscribe button in the upper left-hand corner. It's the best way to avoid food FOMO in Boston. This podcast was produced by Ali Pham. A special thanks to the folks at the PRX Podcast Garage. If you enjoyed what you heard, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts or share the show with friends and family. Your help means so much to us. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show and check out thefoodlens.com for the best restaurants, bars, and events in Boston. Catherine, I actually have a confession to make. Yes. I drink Whispering Angel sometimes. 